This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, December the 4th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Canada took home 52 medals at the Pan American and considers the road to Paris for the 2024 Paralympics. Plus, there are several accessibility issues at public schools in New Brunswick. Shelley Petit offers some insight on how schools can make their grounds more inclusive. And the Canadian Medical Association is advocating for the creation of an intergovernmental role that considers climate change's impact on human health. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will give you more insight on that story. But the show begins with the top story of the day. Protests and rallies will surround Parliament Hill today. Don Kelly looks ahead. The Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs says the rallies to show solidarity with Israel and collective strength in the face of what it calls staggering anti-Semitism. Speakers will include people whose family members were killed by Hamas militants in the October 7th raid into Israel and a Canadian woman whose Israeli cousin is among the hostages still being held in Gaza. Organizers say they want to gather people who believe in Israel's right to exist and its need to defend itself against terror. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. There will also be counter-protests and rallies. There's also quite a snowstorm in Ottawa, which could uh, change how that plays out today as well. Switching over to the, the economy. You know I love talking about the economy. Well, a new survey on the United States economy has some encouraging findings. Daria Albinger crunches the numbers. The National Association for Business Economics says all signs show the economy will grow more this year than members thought a few months back. That the total value of goods and services produced in this country, net of imports, increased 2.6% from the end of last year to the end of this year. Nabes Ken Simonson on the December Outlook survey, which predicts a better GDP than economists forecast in October. Other findings, inflation will stay above the Fed's 2% target and job creation could slow a bit. Darion Albinger, ABC News. Now, that's obviously the American economy, but there's even some interesting economic stories from north of the border that should at least be on your radar. Walmart Canada says it will pour nearly $1 billion this year into projects meant to modernize its retail footprint. Michelle Zadikian has some of those details. Some Walmart Canada stores will be altered to include a bigger assortment of fruits and veggies, more space for employees to prepare customer orders, and improved aisle markers. It will also bring what it calls a store of the future to southern Ontario, where shoppers will find electronics set up in open displays rather than locked-in product cases. Also in the electronics department, customers will be able to see real-time product availability, scan a QR code to place orders, and have immediate on-site delivery by an associate. The location will be rounded out with a health hub that brings Walmart's pharmacy, vision care and medical clinic into one area. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. 
That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls. And goodness gracious, did you ever get engaged with Friday's poll question that was all about International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which was marked over the weekend? You were asked, what is one thing that society can do to meaningfully improve the lives of people with disabilities? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Starting on Facebook, Tony writes in, simply put, learn with the right supports and knowledge we all have the ability to contribute to society in some form leona writes in in response to tony absolutely it would be so cool to have a class that teaches about people like carla qualtro who is vision impaired or former para athlete a lawyer and a minister in the federal government or rick hansen who gave us pride with this band in motion event and has built one of the best disability accessibility organizations with the Rick Hansen Foundation. We also increase our own mandate regarding diversity with Indigenous Disability Canada, like IDC and BCNs, and Dawn Canada announcing the cross-appointment of Evelyn Hungens as the new Director of Indigenous Initiatives. This appointment allows for the continued expansion of leadership voices of Indigenous women, girls, and gender-diverse people with disabilities. If we can teach that person with disabilities are integral to our development as a society, then maybe we'll be afforded a seat or two at that dang table. Penny writes in, proper representation in all aspects of society. Craft and Deborah comments, hired disabled to go around the city and find all the places, streets, bus stops, etc., that are accessible to handicapped and seniors. By the way, I'm reading these things as they're written. I, I don't use the H word typically. Uh, over to Pearly says, to be aware, respectful, and supportive. Leanne chimes in, if you say your business application, website, content, etc., is accessible, make sure that it actually is and find ways to make the performing arts more accessible. Oh, that's, that's just Facebook. Over to Twitter, at Accessible Media. Nancy tweets in, number one, hire them. Number two, cease excuse-making about why disabled people cannot be hired even though they are qualified. Mitchell tweets in, empathize. Sarah Jean tweets in, ensure they have enough support to live. Eaton tweets in, unlearn ableism. Oh boy, that was a novel. Thank you so much to everyone out there who contributed at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The show is 10 million times better when your voice is stamped all over it. So feel free to get involved in today's daily poll that's all about assistive technology. Sean Priest is going to be reflecting on the International Day of Persons with Disabilities by talking about something that Apple did over the weekend, which was release a video showing off some of their assistive, assistive tech. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what type of assistive technology has had the biggest impact on your life? Now, I've only got a couple of options here, but I mean, there are a million different ways you can answer this question. Navigation slash GPS is one option. Voice control slash voice over is another. I understand I probably could have separated those two, but I just thought voice technology in one category would be nice. Automated captioning is one that seems to have really blown up here in the last couple of years. And then there's other. So if you click other, you better write in. I don't want to see a bunch of people clicking other and then not writing in because then I will come to your house and I will start licking your devices to, you know, spread a little bit of those Dave germs out there. Alex Smythe, a lot of talking for me, but seven and a half straight minutes of talking. I want to throw things over to you. 
I wonder if you and I are going to land in the same place here. I'm not going to reveal my answer just yet. Sure. Oh, well, I, I think I, I have a clue as well, Dave. I'm going with navigation and GPS, yep. which I feel you're yep. probably, <laughs> yep, you're on the same boat for. And for me, it, it goes beyond just in terms of the sheer accessibility of it. Like I use it just for an ease of use of, of orientation prior to when I go to a new location or destination. It has made things so much easier to learn how to navigate a unique space. Take downtown Toronto, for instance. If there is a place I need to go to for a meeting or if we're going on a, a shoot to film something for the show, I will typically pull up, you know, one of these online maps. I will put in the address and then I'm going to do some looking around, seeing what the actual place looks like. Then you pull into like a real time or a street view or something. It allows you to actually show, oh, this is where the building is. This is where the location is. This is how far it is from a subway or, or a transit stop or there's parking over here. You can really familiarize yourself that when you're actually heading to the location that you you can identify some familiar markers and, and it helps like lower the anxiety, the stress of trying to navigate a space in the moment. And especially too, if there's a lot of people around, it can be very distracting, overwhelming. So having a bit of that knowledge, it really settles my nerves whenever I'm going somewhere new. So that 100% is my vote. That said, I know the value of voice controls. I know the value of automated captioning, things like that. I, I enjoy those elements as well, but for me and how it has the most impact definitely has to do with the navigation and the GPS. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with specific disability, right? That I think if you and I were totally blind, then voiceover and voice control would probably be something that's a much bigger deal for us. But because we're both from the legally blind side of the equation or vision impaired side of the equation, that's where something like navigation plays into our lives every single day. Even when you're going to places that you might be familiar with, you might still punch something into the GPS or the navigation app before you head out. You still have it as something to rely upon if something changes, right? If you need to if you need to go uh, walk somewhere or make a change in plans on the fly, it's fairly easy to do that. So there's the pre-planning side, there's the real-time side, and then there's some of the tracking side that I like too. Mm -hmm. I like it when Google Maps sends me my, my monthly results of how much walking I did, how much public transit I took, where I went, what days were most busy. Like I, I think that these apps just have a lot of value, whether it be pre, during, or after an excursion. Absolutely, and there, there was also there's this new feature I, I, I just kind of came across with, with Apple devices is being able to share your location with another user. Yeah. So I was waiting on the weekend for a friend of mine to, to pick me up and I was able to track where they were coming. So I knew exactly how long it was gonna be before they arrived, when they were coming down the street. It's like, oh, I need to be ready. Oh, I'll be outside now. So they're pulling up in a minute. You know, it's things like that where you you don't necessarily think oh this is gonna offer great value but it's like oh the convenience of this there's the no longer this guesswork that has to go into things it's just phenomenal yeah and uh, even like when i was traveling abroad in europe we we would use uh navigation gps because it's a completely new city and just like oh take the ease of it you don't have to stress you just enjoy your surroundings in general i i think there's so much value in in incorporating the technology into making like some of the stressors of, of navigating daily life, especially if you have a disability, to lessen that load and burden. And now the fact that you have these 
different map apps that offer accessible routes on top of it, it's another huge step forward. Think about where navigation and GPS also end up impacting something like the creation of ride shares, right? Or, mm -hmm. or, or, or ride services like Uber or Lyft. Without that GPS technology on the phone in your pocket, a lot of those services aren't going to exist or be as useful as they are. Now, I'm not here to start whitewashing uh, all these all these ride-hailing uh, apps. They have yeah. their warts, they have their problems, but I would tell you if I sort of extended navigation and GPS to its sort of next step or its secondary or tertiary step in this conversation, I would tell you that the creation of ride-hailing services have also drastically improved my life. Like 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 these things mm -hmm. are these things all connect together well and and you compare why those became so popular and, and what cabs uh, companies started to do to combat that they came out with their own apps that offered tracking of the vehicles so they realized oh that's really what the defining feature and what what the users really want they want to have that control and that that knowledge of where the vehicle is yeah. when it's arriving <laughs> yeah. where to find it because whenever you used to call up a cab, oh, I'll be there in like 15 minutes. You don't know where they're gonna show up. You just kind of have to be in the general area, hope you can spot them. And especially if you're coming out on an event or a busy yeah, night in yeah. downtown Toronto, you just have to be like, I hope that's a cab over there and that <laughs> yeah. one's there for me. Like you just didn't know. Whereas these navigation elements within these ride sharing programs and, and apps made it that, oh, this is mine. This is the license plate. This is the driver. I have more confidence that I'm getting into the right vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, Alex and I clearly are on the same page on this one. Curious where you land out there in listener land in the viewer vortex. You can vote on the poll. What type of assistive technology has had the biggest impact on your life? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can send emails, feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a call 1-866-509-4545 1-866-509-4545 coming up after the break the canadian the canadian medical association is advocating for the creation of an intergovernmental role that considers climate change and human health Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will offer a bit of perspective on this story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. This is, I was going to say it again, but I don't need to. Talk to you in two minutes. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Canadian Medical Association has been part of the United Nations Climate Summit. The summit has been considering the health impacts of climate change and the CMA has an idea. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Michelle has more on this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. And so, everyone. And everyone else, but but just just save it for me for now. Just just I, I like to think of it as more personal. <laughs> Only I get the good morning, Michelle. It's implied for everyone I'm, else. All right. <laughs> greedy. I'm greedy on a Monday, uh, Michelle. Th there's actually quite a bit to this story that's quite interesting. Yeah. The CMA is advocating for the creation of an intergovernmental position 
This is kind of a big question, but what would the focus be? Yeah, well, it, it's a good thing you're asking about the focus because details are sparse. We don't know a lot about what they're specifically calling for, but what they want is called a, a National Health and Climate Secretariat. And what they want is basically an office within the government to work across federal, provincial, municipal jurisdictions to build a, cl a climate-resistant and carbon-neutral health sector in Canada. That's in short what they want. What that would look like, of course, would be super complex. And again, details are, I don't, This it's just an idea at this yeah, stage. Yeah. But that it's, is ultimately it's, what it's, they want to do is to try to mitigate the impact of a sector that in and of itself creates a surprising number of emissions that I never quite realized, but also just to really emphasize the, the direct link between climate change and healthcare, which they're exploring the dedicated day to it at COP28 for the first time. Yeah, so so let's let's dive a little deeper here. I know uh, you found yourself in a rabbit hole, and so did I when it came to healthcare and climate change, because there has been a little bit of conversation about human health directly, but not necessarily the sustainability or footprint of the industry itself. But exactly. Then, but then you start thinking about it, and you're like, oh goodness, how much medical waste is filling landfills or or other areas of uh, disposal? A hundred percent. Or how many emissions are generated by various forms of transportation, ambulances, people commuting for home care. Um, one that I had never thought of until I was reading about it at COP28 briefings was the use of certain types of inhalers. Uh, apparently, there's a lot that escapes from that, a, sh a shocking amount. Like, and, and when, when I talk about some of these numbers, consider that globally, on average, the healthcare sector is expected to contribute about 5% of global emissions. In the United States, it's 8.5% of that country's emissions. In Canada, it's about 4%. So these are actually fairly significant things. Oh, another fun fact. Did you know that it's apparently certain types of anesthesia are more carbon neutral than others? Because I sure did. I did not know that at all. Right? So that these are the sorts of things that that keep coming up. And of course, this is all sort of the backstory behind, like you said, Dave, the impact on human health, which is becoming increasingly clear. Seven million global deaths last year due to heat-related things. It's more than 600 dying in BC alone in 2021 with the heat dome that they had there. Uh, the effect of wildfires um, on people's health. The respiratory, so, yeah, the, re the respiratory side of, of, of wildfires is, is a huge hugely. one. Oh, yeah. And and almost fittingly, in a way, COP28's Health Day, which was yesterday, took place in Dubai under hazy skies. So, yeah, it's real. It's happening. And these are exactly the sorts of connections that the, the various COP delegates want the world to take more notice yeah. of. The other thing that, that I consider here, Michelle, in these conversations is what it's going to take to power assistive medical devices because there have been some mm. pretty disingenuous conversations had in the last uh, six to eight weeks about the reliability of a more carbon-neutral electricity grid, but it is worth considering, considering the importance of reliability for people who might use something like a ventilator, other breathing devices, yeah. uh, dialysis machines, that if you are moving towards a greener grid... Now, I'm one of the people who does believe that there's a strong case to be made about the reliability of, of a greener grid, but there at least needs to be a consideration, a contemplation that if there is any unreliability at all, that could disproportionately impact a person with a disability. Excellent point. Yeah, I hadn't considered that one, but that's a, that's a really good point. Another disproportionately affected group for the health effects of climate change are people living in lower income neighborhoods without tree cover. Apparently there in some of those neighborhoods temperatures can be 10 to 12 degrees higher than elsewhere wow. in the same city. Wow. So yeah, again, so many 
so many direct connections that we need to consider. Yeah, and either way, it was a really interesting day. Uh, like, like Michelle and I are only really giving you the thumbnail sketch here. Really, oh, a like lot there's of, so much. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot covered at that UN climate. Yes, uh, the, the UN summit yesterday about health and climate. It, it was probably one of the more interesting days uh, of of the summit so far, and maybe one of the most interesting sort of climate days that I've ever had the chance of taking in a couple highlights on. Yeah, me too. And I would recommend uh, this Associated Press had nice in-depth coverage of the day yesterday that's worth taking a look at. And my colleague Jordan Amstead did a great job setting up the Canadian-specific perspective the day before yeah. that. So um, worth taking a look. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth a, a deeper dive. Michelle, let's just switch over to provincial politics. Uh, this is a national show, but, you know, Ontario is the biggest province in the country by uh, quite a ways. And the Ontario Liberal Party has a new leader. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie won the leadership. Sure yeah, won the leadership draft after three rounds of ballots on the weekend. So to say that Bonnie Crombie won in three rounds of ballots, I mean, that that is just sort of like a top-line copy. What did the results actually look like? Yeah, well, it was a it was a closer race. This whole race is more interesting than, than first meets the eye. And for a national audience, I'll very quickly set up. The Liberal Party was the dominant force in Ontario politics for decades. Uh, there was a Liberal premier on ensconced for 15 years, from 2003 to 2018. And for the past two elections, they have failed to garner official party status. That is how badly they've done at the polls. So this has been a very, they've become a sleeper party and they're trying very much to fight their way back. And Bonnie Crombie is an interesting choice for that job because she has a lot of experience. She's the mayor of Mississauga, which is uh, a huge neighboring suburb to Toronto, mm -hmm. but a very big city in its own right. Um, she's been doing that for nine years. She spent some time as a federal MP. She was on city council. So she's done most levels of, of politics. Um, and a lot of people expected her to kind of walk away with this. And that's not really what happened. Um, it was... First ballot win was kind of a long shot, but everyone was pretty sure she'd probably get it on the second ballot. There were only four competitors. Two of them had agreed to back each other as second choices in a bid to stop her because she that, that's how much her front run, runner status was cemented. Uh, but it did take until the third ballot for her to get the win. And even then, it wasn't a huge, huge margin of victory. She had about 53% of the votes. Mm -hmm. He needed more than 50 to win. And uh, Nate Erskine-Smith, the federal liberal MP, uh, came in second place. And he, he uh, in a, by the third ballot, it was just the two of them. But he had about 47-ish percent once it's yeah, all of a sudden done yeah. with this ranked ballot system they had. So um, it wasn't a total walk for Bonnie Crombie. And, but yet there is there are other factors that make her victory interesting because this whole race has done a lot to reinvigorate the party and bring in new members, which, of course, brings in new dollars which is exactly what a new party or an old party on the fringes trying to get back to the center of the action is looking for, exactly those yeah. sorts of things. The, the word new is really important there for this party, Michelle, because whether you're looking mm -hmm. at the federal MP who was running or the other member who was making it close, uh, Yasser Nakfi, who's been an Ottawa right. area MPP for a long time. He was the party president for a long time. It almost feels like there had to be a sense of new blood in the party, a new energy, and really pulling from the municipal side of things and someone who's been a mayor of of really, like, like Mississauga is its own city, but like it's sort of an extension of Toronto it, it like it is an extension of Toronto and if you can start galvanizing neighborhoods like Mississauga to maybe start to show out in the polls that's the type of thing that maybe doesn't win you a full-blown election in the province but it definitely reestablishes your footprint because as goes the GTA so goes Ontario so provincial goes, elections 
So do all elections. It's fascinating. There's co interesting data around that. But the 905, which is the, the sort of colloquial term with the area code surrounding this, this Toronto area, um, th that's a path to victory for pretty much anyone, federally, provincially. And you're right, Dave, that is a huge priority. That is something that any party wants to secure a foothold in. And Bonnie Crombie is well positioned to do that as the long, longest time now mayor from Mississauga. Um, the fresh blood aspect is interesting, too, because you're right. Yasser Nakfi, in addition to everything else you mentioned, was a senior cabinet minister under Kathleen Wynne, as was Stephen Del Duca, the last person who was Liberal Party leader. And I think a lot of the critiques leveled at the party was that they weren't really going for change. They were embracing the same old faces and just shuffling them around. So, yeah, Bonnie Crombie is someone who has not been part. She's been part of the liberal establishment so to speak, but not provincially. So in that sense, she's kind of a good mix of, of sort of old and new in that in that sense. Um, but yeah, it, it because it wasn't quite as convincing a victory as as people expected, that that raises a few questions. And the other thing that has to be considered too is the fact that she does not currently have a house or seat in the legislature. Yeah, yeah. And 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 has, so, to, and has, to, and has to finish her duties as mayor of Mississauga. She said it explicitly in the victory speech. Too. I've got to put a budget forward in Mississauga and then I can start worrying <laughs> about the province. That's right. So she'll be stepping down sometime in the new year, she said, probably early on. But then, yeah, she's got no seat in the ledge, so she has to figure out, does she want to try to go for one? In which case, are we talking about trying to persuade someone to step down? Are you waiting for an opening? Um, you've got to pick your writings somewhat strategically in a case like that. You sure like do. Sometimes. You sure do. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just, just ask a former federal uh, leader of the Green Party, uh, Annemi Paul, who, who or John who, uh, or John Tory, or John Tory, former, yeah, uh, head of the Progressive Conservative Party provincially. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a great, not a great look when you can't win your own by election. So. Uh, that's, uh, that's something I'll have to consider as to whether to try to go that route at all or just maintain the status quo and have Bonnie Crombie do a big roadshow on the province and try to establish herself from outside the ledge, uh, which is definitely an option as well. So uh, remains to be seen exactly how she's going to jump on that one. Michelle, before I say goodbye to you, you and I have run a little over time here, but I do think it's worth asking this question. A lot of conversations about assistive technology on the show today, and that's the Daily Poll, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Michelle, what's the piece of assistive tech that's had the biggest impact on your life? And I'm going to read the options here, but you're welcome to go off the board. Na okay. Navigation yep. and GPS, voiceover and voice control, automated captioning or other. Oh, that's a tight one. Uh, voiceover is one of the two contenders. That's an absolute game changer for reasons I won't list. Um, but screen reading tech, JAWS, has been a game changer for, for years. I mean, that's how I... I don't imagine I could have broken into the workforce without it. So I, I'm a bit torn. But if I had to pick, I'll guess I'll, I'll, guess I'll go with voiceover. For, for current impact, yeah, voiceover. For, for what it's worth, I, I would allow a screen reader to fall into a subcategory of voiceover. So, so maybe you know, maybe maybe it all okay. maybe it all connects. Like, oh, maybe there's a big old theme here. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm 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 up for wiggle room on a Monday morning. Well, but wiggle room on a Monday morning. We can't be making Appreciate any hard. That. We can't be making any hard and fast policies at almost 9:30 a.m. on a Monday morning. The week's only Especially getting started. Especially without coffee. Yeah. You know, you're Especially, well, right. I've already had some of that today. Michelle, have yourself a lovely day. Talk to you on Friday as part of the news panel. You too. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, there are several accessibility issues at public schools in New Brunswick. Shelley Petit will offer some insights on what schools can do to make their grounds more inclusive. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Public schools in New Brunswick are facing a slew of accessibility issues. Shelley Petit and her organization have been assisting with some of the accessibility complaints. Shelley is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Hey, good morning, Shelley. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Shelly, I'm great. I always enjoy chatting with you because you shed some light on what's going on in a province that sometimes doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And there are a whole bunch of issues at public schools. And let's start with maybe what you'd assume were one of the more basic issues. And that's that a lot of the province's schools were built prior to 1970 and do not have elevators. There is one school that's doing some repairs and it's affecting one of the students. So what are some of the specific details behind this issue? Okay, so she's a young girl in grade 12, Jessica, and uh, she came to us. Her, She got a notification mid-October saying in two weeks' time, we're shutting down the elevator for eight to 10 weeks to do repairs. Um, or not, actually, it wasn't even repairs, it was just an upgrade. And it turns out it's one of those use it or lose it budget issues. But it did not have to happen right then and there. There was nothing wrong with the elevator, but they decided it was time to do an upgrade and they were doing it. And basically, you know, th there was no forethought into the fact that she could not now go to the cafeteria. She couldn't get to her homeroom. She couldn't get to some of her classes that are mandatory for her to graduate. And so she has to sit on the main floor and try to join in by computer, but it doesn't work the same. And this is a young lady who's already had so much of her schooling affected by COVID. And there was no, no forethought as to how it would affect her. So what are the options in place here? Because I think someone watching at home or listening at home would say, hey, an elevator upgrade is a good thing. That, that In the long term, that's a oh. huge benefit. So what are, the, what are the options? What's the better way for a school or a board to handle that? Well, they knew that this was this repair was coming. And I think what happened is the school year started, there was money in the budget, and someone said, oh, let's do the elevator. But let's do some forethought and think, how does this affect people? So if it's an emergency, that's a different story. Then we have to work around that. But in this case, it could have been done the summer before or this coming summer. Even then, it would still impact the school year a bit at an eight to 10-week repair, but it would be a lot better, significantly better. But they even need to start thinking beforehand, how do we arrange our classes? So if our school has several layers, what are some of the classes that are often hidden off to the corners? Because so many of our schools are built like this in New Brunswick. So we tend to hide science labs off into a corner. Well, let's make sure there's at least one on the main accessible floor to everyone so that it's not interrupting their education. If we're doing a tech program or a food lab, make sure there's one of those on the main floor because then you can switch the teachers around and say, okay, well, you used to teach your class in room 311, but for the next two months, you're gonna do it in 211. And all the able-bodied people can move to that room. And then the student can still participate in school as per usual. Yeah, just a little bit of planning, right? Just a little smidge, a little bit of planning, a little bit of tweaking. Yeah, a little bit of planning, a little bit of tweaking. Okay, that's an elevator side. Of course, another standard mm -hmm. accessibility issue is parking spaces and entrances. So there's a student who uses crutches who's having a huge issue with accessible parking spots and entrances to the school. Right. So, so what are some of the details here in terms of how this ends up being a really good example of poor planning right so again it's one of the older schools that you know i'm sure you have them in toronto too like the degrassi building with multiple 
bricks or uh, cement stairs up the front, right? You know, 10, 12, 15 stairs mm-hmm. to get to the front door. So, yeah, we're, you know, unfortunately, those exist still all over the place. And those are very hard to get up if you've got crutches, especially when you're a younger person who's maybe not, your body is still all shifting and adjusting and you're learning how to work with it. So then they have to come in often through a side door towards the basement that has a ramp built into it, which we've seen before. And I've had this happen when I was still able to teach. And there's nothing I could do about the front stairs. But what I could do, because I thought about thought, well, that's not fair to the student. I made sure as soon as I saw the parent pulling into the parking lot when I was on duty, I already had students assigned to go in the front door that were able-bodied, go around and open up the side door with the ramp. So as dad's pulling up to that side door, the door is open because right now, Dad has to either pull up to the front, go up the stairs, go in, get someone to open the side door around the back, like towards the back with the ramp, then go back to his car and drive it around. Or like, you know, so it's just take 30 seconds and think about it. And because we know that common sense is really not all that common, the school board, the district, the superintendent needs to make a policy and say, when you have someone on crutches, the people on duty have to assign someone to make sure that door gets open for them, that they do not have to wait because they shouldn't have to wait. They should yeah. have the same experiences as their friends. I, I think it's also more broadly an example of where if you have an accessible entrance and you have accessible parking spaces, those things need to be sort of lock and step. Like you're describing, yes. there needs to be people on the ground organizing and making decisions. But from purely a design point of view, your accessible mm-hmm. parking spot and your accessible entrances should be going hand in hand as well. And in the in a proper situation, the main door would be switched to the accessible yes, door. And everybody yeah. would be going in the same door. That would be the best solution. And it is very easy to do. But for whatever reason, um, I don't know what it's like in Ontario, but we do not like changing New Brunswick. No. So. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, think, I think that's a commonality uh, that runs across yeah. provincial and national borders. Uh, Shelly, one, yes. more, one more side of this to explore. And this one isn't just a disability issue. This is an everybody issue. Indoor air quality in schools. What's the Mm -hmm. experience on the ground like in New Brunswick right now when it comes to air quality in schools? Well, I would not be disabled if it wasn't for poor air quality in schools. So there's step one. Uh, And I was not the only teacher that was lost at that school. Another teacher has lost her ability to speak because of um, she just developed vocal cord dysmorphia. So our indoor air quality is very poor because we either have these 150-year-old buildings that are full of mold, or we have buildings that were built in the 70s where everything was shut down airtight. Unfortunately, our premier chose to take the money that was provided by the federal government to work on indoor air quality and used it to pay down the debt. So um, our students are suffering. And now we've got an even bigger problem because we've New Brunswick, we're famous for our radon issues. And so schools that are built into the ground have radon problems. Uh, Most of the students think that the little black thing in every classroom is a camera. It's not. It's a radon detector. And it's becoming more well-known because in one community in Salisbury, um, everybody is now checking because a very well-known public health nurse who has never smoked, never used chemicals, any of that stuff, now has incurable lung cancer from radon. It's a killer. And it's become an issue in our schools and 
we need them to do more and be more honest about the radon levels and the air quality levels in these schools so parents can protect their kids. So the, so the solution on air quality is both short-term and long-term, right? Some of it's a mm -hmm. full-blown HVAC, HVAC renovation. That might take some yeah. time. But what are some ways that schools are at least trying to remedy or mitigate the air quality issue? Um, the ones that are have strong administration that is not towing the government line, they're actually allowing some people are bringing in the homemade um, air purifier systems and different air purifier systems, but the school board does not like those. Uh, yes, yeah, so right there, there's many schools that are now allowing those in the classrooms or the teachers are bringing them in themselves. And then you, you know, when I worked, we I had one as well, but you hit it if someone from district was coming around because it, it uses up power and it costs oh, money. Oh they gosh. don't like that. Oh gosh, a, 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 a HEPA filter might, might, might increase the hydro bill by 20 cents. Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's, there's no four things. We don't think what are the long-term implications on our healthcare system from this, on our students, on their ability to learn. Um, and then we've got a lot of schools that are close to, especially in the poor economic areas, they're close to the refineries and stuff. You can't open the windows because it smells like a gas plant out there. So you can't even circulate in fresh air within the buildings. Mm. And radon remediation is not that difficult. You know, they could do a lot of it just from, you know, doing a new layer down on the basements in the schools. But if you don't, if you, if you pretend there's no problem, then there's no problem to fix. Shelly, thank you for this. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. All the best. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yes, and I probably won't talk to you before. So, happy holidays to you and everyone at AMI. Oh yeah, all the best. We'll talk to you. Uh, we'll talk to you in 2024, Shelley. And it's going to be a great year. The Canada Disability Benefits coming. Here we go. I like that. That's optimism. Yeah. I like that. That's Shelley Petit, chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. To learn more about their programs, you can visit nbcpd.org. NBC. PD.org. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minute. Canada's main stock index gained 1.1% in trading on Friday, kicking December off on a positive note after the big rallies of November. Toronto's TSX index surged 216 points on Friday to close the week at 20,452. New York's Dow Jones average gained 294 points and the Nasdaq rose 78. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 200 points. February's gold contract surged over $32 on Friday to just under $2,090 U.S. an ounce. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.84 cents U.S. Coming up this week in business, home sales numbers for Canada's biggest and most expensive cities are expected this week, with numbers coming in from the greater Vancouver area and the Toronto region. The Bank of Canada will make its last scheduled interest rate announcement for this year on Wednesday. The central bank's key interest rate target currently sits at 5%. From the Canadian Press business desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to Alex Smythe for the weather update. Oof, Alex, shovels out in huge swaths of the country this morning. Yeah, Dave, from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland, you're going to be experiencing a lot of snow to start your week. So Nova Scotia particularly has been hit hard by this wintry storm system that has brought snow across 
half of the country, essentially. So schools in the province are already been closed throughout the uh Close today throughout the province. The airport has already reported 12 centimeters of snow this morning. And so this system is expected to linger until late tonight into tomorrow, and then it will move on to Newfoundland late Tuesday. Uh, the province's heaviest snowfall is expected in the Bay of Fundy area, which could see upwards of 15 centimeters of snow falling. And then in New Brunswick, the southern portion of the province could get upwards of 20 centimeters of wet snow. And that's going to include areas like St. John's, Fredericton, and Moncton. Uh, and then in Newfoundland, the south coast is really going to be uh, hit hard with uh, 10 centimeters at least of snow by Tuesday. So as you say, Dave... Get those uh, yeah. snow shovels ready. Get the snow plows ready. Get the snow blowers ready. It's going to be wet. It's going to be heavy. And it's just the start of yeah. the winter season out east. Uh, school buses were canceled in Ottawa this morning. Whatever that system was that passed through Toronto yesterday, it was super wet. It was super rainy. And that uh, turned itself into some pretty heavy snow uh, working its way east and north across the uh, province over the day. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you a little bit later in the show. Coming up next, Napoleon. The film about the historical figure is in theaters. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti trekked out to the theater and has a review of the film. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's a new movie that is dramatizing the rise and fall of Napoleon. Napoleon stars Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon Bonaparte. Here's a clip from the trailer. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. Marie Antoinette walks amid an angry crowd. We must make an example or France will fall. She's placed in the guillotine. The blade drops. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? Cannons are aimed at approaching crowds. Napoleon covers his ears. The cannons fire. People scatter. I promise you brilliant successes. Soldiers salute as Napoleon walks off. From Ridley Scott, the acclaimed director of Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, American Gangster, The Martian. At a grand ball, Napoleon meets a woman. What is this costume you have on? This is my uniform. Soldiers scale a wall under fire, including Napoleon. I led the French victory at Toulon. Cannons fire at ships, which explode and burn. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life just changed. Napoleon. In Egypt, he gazes at the Sphinx. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. Cavalry charges a line. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Soldiers rush into a palace and level their weapons at the assembly. Napoleon enters the chamber. Shall we vote? Napoleon is out in theaters. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti made the trek out to the theater to review the film. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, uh, going to the theater uh, both has a financial toll and uh, some logistical hassles. Why did Napoleon drag you out of the house? 
Well, there's a couple of reasons why. One is because um, I'm kind of interested in this idea that Apple Films uh, is doing. So this is the second uh, of the Apple original films to do this, which is to trailblaze into the cinematic theatrical release genre. So the first of them, um, if you didn't know, was Killers of the Flower Moon, which I haven't seen. I don't know if you've seen that one yet. I know no, it's on your it's foot, list. Football, Amy. Football. It, football just occupies my brain for four months to four to five months a year. So, so this is like the new plan of Apple TV Plus is to do these big theatrical lease, releases and then to follow up on streaming platforms. So I was kind of interested in how they're going to do that. And they're, they're putting in a billion dollars into this sort of new game plan. And second is because I and my mother uh, in 2019 traveled to Paris and we've actually been to Napoleon's tomb oh, uh, to the site of yeah, to where Napoleon is is uh, is is buried, and uh, that was uh, really interesting. So we're kind of interested in French history, and I had been to the site, and so we thought, ah, you know what, you know, if there was a, a movie to be seen on the big screen, sometimes you want to see battle movies mm -hmm. on the big screen. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I also like that you identify the streaming approach here. I don't have Apple Plus, so yeah. uh, if I want to see this in any kind of due time, I need to see it in theaters because I'm not going to uh, subscribe for any more, any more uh, streaming services for me. Okay, historical drama. Clearly, this is a historical drama, battle-driven, character-driven, biographical. Where does Napoleon size up, pardon the pun, Paul Daniel put that in the script, uh, c come up when it rises to accuracy and depiction? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a couple of pitfalls with this type of genre in in and of itself in these sort of historical epics, right? Um, because they try and capture uh, a, a historical timeline, right? So of course, as you noted, this is the rise and fall sort of 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 Napoleon's um, a fame as a as a as a general as a French general, right? Um, so it's kind of a twenty year span, and so twenty years is a lot to capture in two hours and thirty eight minutes. Um, and so for me, uh, what ends up happening is that there are lots of gaps in this type of storytelling. Um, and so it makes kind of a fragmented story and it makes some assumptions that you as the viewer or the witnesser of the film comes in with a certain amount of knowledge of French history. So it kind of makes the assumption like, you know, in the trailer right off the beginning when they, they behead um, Marie Antoinette, does your viewer understand what happened to that point, why that happens? I don't know. Um, you know, the things that I knew about Napoleon before I even went into this film was born in Corsica, uh, married a woman named Josephine, exiled to Elba, uh, emperor, a batter of Waterloo. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just a couple just a couple fun facts about Napoleon to get you started. Right? Yeah. Uh, so you know they they make they make these assumptions that you know you know about the coup. They talk about the coup, but they don't really talk about the coup. It's just a thing that comes up on the screen that says the coup, and you're like, well, what's the coup all about, right? Yeah, like, so yeah. they don't talk about this stuff really in any depth. So they're making a certain amount of assumptions that you kind of know a bit about French history before you come in. That's the that's the downfall of an epic in two hours and 38 minutes. Yeah, it speaks to the complexity of trying to tell that many years of story in such a short period of time. There's almost no way of 
uh, making sure the story doesn't feel fragmented. And that maybe speaks to something that Michael McNeely, entertainment critic on the show, has also talked about, that oftentimes a great biographical film might only really focus around one event or a short period of time to tell a more representative, broader story. But I also get the temptation. There's a lot of Napoleon's story to tell. So if you're Ridley Scott, you want to tell it all. Absolutely. Um, or you just have to take a much more thoughtful approach. And I was sitting in my seat in the theater thinking, what are some of the other sort of epical, ep ep epic um, timeline movies? And all I could think about was Braveheart you know, set aside sort of the anti-Semitic stuff that we learned about Mel Gibson after the fact. But in that movie, there, again, it's a series of battles, but there is something narrative in there mm. that sort of pulls at you and brings you in, um, which is not necessarily the same for this film, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a that's a yeah. very that's a very fair criticism. There's yeah. also been some controversy around the movie. What are people bringing up? Well, again, I, I'm not sure that it, controversy is necessarily the the right term to use, but I think it's really about how fragmented this film really is. Um, some of it is a bit about how um, Joaquin Phoenix is playing. Uh, the role of Napoleon, um, which I, I know you're going to ask me about uh, his performance as well. So maybe we'll combine these two. I just, just, the Amy, Amy, just throw it out there. Don't, don't wait for me to throw it out there. If, yeah. if, 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 so if, the if his performance is part of it, please. Yeah, the, the fragmentedness of this film and the way his performance is in that. Um, and listen, I wasn't there. From I don't know anything about Napoleon. I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't have a conversation with the man, right? Um, so, but he plays Napoleon in this way where sometimes he's very childlike and sometimes he's very, um, sometimes he's very mean and sometimes he's very sort of dictator-like and sometimes he's, uh, uh, very soft and gentle. And so there's this real sort of dynamic difference in, in, in these moments that you have with him. Um, but again, these moments are fleeting and, and fast and they move quickly and, I think for me, sometimes that was really difficult to figure out who and what kind of person this was and mm. whether this was historically accurate and based on what or whether this was Joaquin Phoenix doing a Joaquin Phoenix thing. Um, right. And so mm. those are kinds of the, the things that I, I think about in terms of maybe some of the things that have been talked about around this film. And, you know, I think what Ridley Scott is going to do about this is, and we kind of touched on this with, with what Apple TV is planning to do with these theatrical releases, is following up with these uh, theatrical releases on the streaming platforms with director's cuts that give you much more time. Oh. So there's supposed to be a director's cut of this, of Napoleon released. They don't have a date yet, but they're sort of suspecting that it will be spring of 2024. So if you want to get Apple TV Plus, <laughs> you, can, you can maybe get it in spring of 2024 or go to a friend's house, right? Right now, the director's cut is looking at about four hours. Uh, and what they're also suspecting is that perhaps it'll be the first time ever where you will get the original theatrical next to the director's cut where the viewer, the subscriber in this case, can choose which one they would like to mm. watch. Both, not both, right? That kind of thing. So, you know, this is a whole new thing that Apple is doing to give the viewer choices. But of course, as you know, 
if you have four hours, you can expand on some of this fragmented stuff. Although what I've been reading is that it might go into a little bit more depth about how Napoleon, uh, sorry, about what Josephine's life was like before she met Napoleon, which I was kind of like, nah, I could do, I could do with less of that. Okay. <laughs> you're giving me a direct, you're giving me a director's cut with less of what I want yeah, <laughs> or, more, or more of what yeah. I don't want. Yeah, if that is indeed what it is going to be about, and of course I haven't seen it, that is not what I need. <laughs> yeah, although I do, I do think there's some appeal to that. You, you sort of identified fragmented storytelling, maybe a little mm. bit of a breakdown. Let's be clear, nobody's going to go see a movie in theaters that's four hours long unless there's a guaranteed pee break intermission in between. That's right. Would you at yeah. least be tempted? Like, let, let's say that Josephine rumor isn't true. Would you at least be tempted to watch the director's cut if they promised you Ridley Scott was going to put the pieces together a little bit better? Yes, I am still tempted to watch the director's cut for a couple of reasons. One, I want to see if they address the fragmentation of this film. I want to see if there's a little bit more of the French history in there, sort of the richness of that for good or for good or not. Right. Um, and two, I want to see if the description changes, um, because the description for me in this film was hugely problematic. Um, and I was trying to find out where and who wrote this description and I couldn't find it anywhere. Cause you know, typically at the end of the film, it'll tell you who described the film mm. and it's not there. Um, so like this is just a handful of examples for you, Dave, right at the top, it says, uh, it, you know, so this is a typical film where you've got uh, video clips and credits happening at the same time. And so, you know, the, the describer has to choose, but in this case, you've got picture and then you've got black screen with credits. So really you don't have to, right. You can do both. So it would describe the, the, what's happening in the, in the video. And then it would say credits, but not give me any credits. So why even tell me there are credits there, but not give me any credits. Okay, so that's just one thing. And then it would use language like in Egypt, it would say that they are uh, at, at an Egyptian coffin. Well, that's not a thing in Egypt, right? Like we know that describers use language that fits in with the world. So you could use tomb, you could use sarcophagus, and there's lots of time for description. Oh. There's very, like there's lots of room for description. So you could say a sarcophagus, which is a, you know, a traditional Egyptian tomb, whatever, right? There's lots of space for that kind of stuff. And even, you know, I don't know, Dave, when you shave in the morning, are you shaving a beard? Uh, so, like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh, maybe you I'm, are. No, maybe no, you no. Are. Well, it grows, it grows fast, but not that fast. So, you know, this is the thing. When Napoleon shaves, it says he's shaving his beard, but he's really shaving like the stubble from yesterday. That's not a beard. And Josephine's uh, had a, a shirt that she was wearing sort of off the shoulder, and it says it exposed her chest. And that's a very different thing for me, especially when you're talking about the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So an exposure of the chest is a bare a woman with a bare chest. And so it made me think about, I was wondering about whether this was, can't, but I can't find any details about it. Well, because AI generated narration would come up with these things that aren't quite right, but sort of halfway right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. that was, it was a miss, a miss for me. Okay, the description, no good. Okay, so keep in mind that maybe you found the storytelling to be a little fragmented and the audio description wasn't particularly good. Should I fork out my hard-earned money and take the time to trek out to the theater before this one hits the streaming services? Well, I mean, if you like good popcorn. I do. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, here's the thing. There are lots of great things about this movie. Truly, there are. I mean, the uh, amount of money that they put into the costumes and sort of the uh, historical um, setting of it is astonishing. So if you've got partial sight and you can make out any of that, some of that world building is beautiful. And if you can take advantage of a big, big screen to do it, do it. Um, the second thing about it is, is that there were things about Napoleon that I learned. Uh, did you know that he was married to uh, uh, an Austrian? I don't know this. So, you know, uh, I didn't know that he had a relationship with Russia. Uh, so there are all sorts of things that I did learn that I had no idea existed. So, you know, there are some pros to going to see this this movie. And some of the other acting in this movie is great. Other than, and I, I this is all, always the thing that I get on, Dave, and, and I've never said it before, maybe I have, is why is it in every movie where they have French characters that they have British accents? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a strange one for sure. Right? So, in, in, no different in this movie. I, in, in All the Light We Cannot See, those French characters had British accents. The Germans had German accents. Ancient Romans and ancient Greeks always seem to have English accents, too, in, in historical dramas. I just, you know, so the same in Napoleon. They, the, the Frenchmen all have British accents, but, you know, the... Uh, the Russians have a Russian accent and the Austrians have a like, like So I don't understand how that piece works. You know, I think about one of my favorite movies and plays, Les Miserables. Yep, they all have British accents and it's it's French. <laughs> so um, there's a thing for you. But yeah, you know, if you if you have time on your hands, it's actually quite a beautiful cinematic um, uh, thing to see on a big screen. So it's, it's, it's worth your 15 bucks. Okay, very good. A chance to support. I wouldn't maybe go see it in VIP but it's worth your 15 bucks. Well, that's the only way I like to see movies. Amy, thank you for this. Have a great day. All right, Dave. That's Amy Amanti, entertainment critic with a review of Napoleon. Napoleon is out in theaters and is rated R. Coming up after the break, I've got a short regional news update for you, and then Brock Richardson reacts to what was a very busy football weekend in the National Football League. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, also at amiplus.ca, or the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Had somebody uh, send me a text message over the weekend that I was their number one most listened to podcast on their Spotify wrapped. It uh, filled me with quite a bit of joy to have received that message. So uh, thank you, Adam. Super, super cool. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, December the 4th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Canada took home 52 medals at the Parapan American Games. Gold medalist Alison Levine reflects on her experience and considers the road to Paris in 2024. And Apple released a video on existing accessibility features ahead of International Day of Persons with Disabilities. When is the best time for companies to advertise these kinds of services? Sean Priest from Double Tap weighs in with his thoughts. Let's begin the hour with the regional news update. 
Starting in British Columbia, Environment Canada says southern BC should brace for a deluge of rainfall today that amounts to an atmospheric river. Monday's forecast calls for heavy rain and snow at higher elevations and will increase the risk of flooding and landslides. A special weather statement says elevated ocean water levels near Metro Vancouver, the southern Gulf Islands and Saanich Peninsula are also expected to create some high tides. Over to the prairies. The first degree murder trial of a former Saskatchewan Mountie begins today. Kelly Malone has more. Bernie Herman was charged with first degree murder and the death of 26 year old Brayden Herman in 2021. They're not related. Braden's body was found in an isolated area of Little Red River Park on the outskirts of Prince Albert that May. Bernie was a 32-year member of the RCMP. He was arrested the same day and has since resigned from the force. Family members say Braden was kind, caring and thoughtful. He was a gentle giant who would never hurt a fly. Kelly Malone, the Canadian Press, Prince Albert. And over to the Atlantic provinces, the Human Development Council has released a report about living wages in New Brunswick. The organization says the hourly pay necessary to afford to live in Fredericton is nearly $10 higher than minimum wage. The province's most expensive city is Fredericton, where living wage is estimated at $24.50 an hour. In St. John, the council found that living wage is $23.35 an hour. Minimum wage in New Brunswick currently sits at $14.75 an hour. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Busy Sunday in the National Football League, starting with the 1 o'clock games. The Miami Dolphins splashed the Washington Commanders 45-15. Receiver Tyree Kill had a pair of touchdown catches. Quarterback Tua Tungavailoa says the team is feeling great. I think any offense is fun when you're scoring a lot of points. Um, it helps to, to go out there when you're scoring points. Guys get into rhythm. Guys get in flow. Everyone just enjoys... Uh, the, the success that we all have because of it. Brock, the vibes are good in uh, Dolphins land. They are good, and I think the Miami Dolphins took care of business as they should have uh, yesterday. But I have a question for you. As a Miami Dolphins fan, does this uh, win give you any more confidence on what you see from the Miami Dolphins? And because they're having success, do you believe their ceiling has climbed? And if so, what do you think their ceiling is for this year? They have yet to beat a team with a winning record. Their three losses they've had were all against teams with winning records. I uh, am not a believer just yet in the Miami Dolphins, Brock, but I am enjoying the ride because I have not had much to enjoy for the better part of 25 years. So I will take 45 to 15 victories over subpar teams. And certainly I accept and take the reality that after tonight, at the absolute worst, the Miami Dolphins are going to be tied for the best record in the AFC and somewhat control their own destiny to potentially have the number one seed and a first round playoff bye with home field advantage the rest of the way. I do not want to get too far ahead of myself, but Brock, I will tell you, this win doesn't mean too, too much for me in terms of the broader picture, but I'm at least having a little bit of optimism and a little bit of fun with this season. And as you should, I believe. So I, I'm loving watching the Miami Dolphins. They're kind of my second team, if you will, in the uh, in the league. So I, I'm also enjoying this. But I, I am also 
tampered with my yeah, excitement yeah, as well. There you go. You got you to gotta be realistic with your expectations or else in your life you'll always be disappointed. Switching to the afternoon game. This was probably the marquee game of the day. The San Francisco 49ers grounded the Philadelphia Eagles 42-19 in a matchup of powerhouses. Niners receiver Debo Samuel scored three total touchdowns in the win, but Brock, all of San Fran's weapons got in on the action. Running back Christian McCaffrey had a touchdown. Brandon Ayuk, their wide receiver, had a touchdown. Their tight end George Kittle made a bunch of catches. Their defense played super well. It was a, a pretty uh, sound beating the Niners put on the Eagles. Yeah, it was. And the San Francisco 49ers have so many different ways they can come at you, as you just mentioned. And I think they showed that uh, yesterday. I will also say that this is the kind of game that makes me believe in San Francisco a little bit more. They've had a little bit of trouble in the mid sort of early part of the season where we kind of wondered, what are you guys going to be? And and yesterday was one of those games where they, they, they made a statement. It started out kind of a little defensive of a game where it was, yeah, you know, and, and you thought, what is this game going to be? It was, it was only uh six, nothing for the Philadelphia Eagles for the better part of the uh, first half. And it was just an interesting game. I think for me, the two sort of turning points for, for the 49ers was the fact that they scored uh, at the end of the first half and then the beginning of the second half. I think that sort of got their train rolling a little bit, uh, a little bit more uh, cohesively. And I'm, I'm buying in on the 49ers because I think they're going to be something. And Philadelphia is a team that's been really successful this year. So when you have that kind of game, this is, this is good. If you're, if you're the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. It's, it's been a gauntlet for the Eagles as they've played a bunch of uh, Super Bowl contenders here in the better part of the last month. And San Fran is just the most recent. I wonder if Philadelphia ran out of gas a little teensy bit in this game, but uh, right now it's not just you who believes in the San Francisco 49ers, Brock, uh, the sports fans in Las Vegas have them as the Super Bowl favorites as of this morning by a pretty wide margin. So uh, you're in good company there. Okay. Okay, over to the nightcap. The Green Bay Packers stunned the Kansas City Chiefs 27-19. Packers quarterback Jordan Love threw three touchdowns in the win. Love was very pleased with his performance. Obviously, I've had this game, you know, circled for a long time. It's my first start. Um, obviously, didn't play how I wanted to the first game. So being able to see these guys again and, and get the victory is huge. Um, you know, this is a great team win tonight. Um, you know, everybody just balled out. So, um, but it was an awesome win. Brock, I don't know what the bigger story is here. A Green Bay Packers team that is surging after some midseason struggles and uh, now finds themselves deep in contention for a playoff spot or the Kansas City Chiefs, where it's been sort of the same story all year. The offense is not quite as dynamic. It's not quite good enough. They're lacking in offensive weapons and there's not much they can do about it. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to give some love to Jordan Love and company. I think they're, you know, doing their thing. And, and listen, in the NFL, you're really only as good as your last game. And if we're looking at this in 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 a broader picture, you know, they came out, they stunned Detroit on, on the Thanksgiving weekend, and then they did the same thing with, with uh, Kansas City. So they're playing really sort of consistently, and I think they're understanding and saying, look, look, we're the underdogs here. We, we are rolling, we're doing this thing. And for me, Dave Green Bay has sort of become my – out of nowhere dark horse if they can get in who knows what will happen when you have this kind of confidence 
rolling into the you know last sort of quarter of the season. Who knows? But I, I'm going to give the love to uh, the Green Bay Packers and say that they deserve it as opposed to looking at the Kansas City Chiefs and being concerned because yeah. I think Green Bay needs the love. It's too early to be concerned about Kansas City. That That's going to be a bigger conversation come playoff, te- playoff time, but they're pretty much guaranteed to make the playoffs. The question is, uh, do they show up in January like they always do? Okay, Brock, that's it. No more time. Got to go. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Apple released a video showing off some of their accessibility features ahead of International Day of Persons with Disabilities. It begs the question, when's the best time for companies to advertise features and services like that? Sean Priest of Double Tap will weigh in. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Apple released a video last week ahead of International Day of Persons with Disabilities. The video shows Dr. Tristan Ingham using two Apple features on iOS 17 to read a story to his daughter. The features are live speech and personal voice. Dr. Ingham is a disability advocate who lives with muscular dystrophy that affects muscles in his body and face. Let's take a moment to watch the video in full. The Lost Voice. A girl stands in a forest. She looks around, then at a medallion around her neck. She opens it, then looks up as a furry pink and white creature with a leafy t-shirt and glasses approaches. Why, oh, white creature, are you so quiet? You've lost your voice. I'll help you find it. She looks at the medallion, which is a compass. It spins, then stops. Let's go. The creature follows to her riverbank. Maybe your voice is under the smoke. He lifts it. No voice there. Just this frog. And bugs. Later, they search on hillsides. Anything! The distant creature shrugs. Could it be up in that tree? Not in my tree. Nothing to see. An owl shakes its head. They leave the forest, cross sand dunes, and sit atop a mound eating chips. Can it be found atop the mound? Or is it deep down underground? They look down. A turnip smiles below on a stormy sea. Have you checked in the boat? I can't find it! What did it fall back down your throat? On a beach. Open your mouth. Open wide. Why, I can't see your voice inside. After she looks into the creature's mouth with a telescope, they sit by a fire, dejected. It seems you have so much to say. She snuggles into the creature. In reality, the girl lies in bed, the story opened by her. A man with a leafy t-shirt and glasses sits with her. I'm sure we'll find another way. Read it again. Okay. He types into his phone. One more time. He pats her head personal voice recreates your own voice on iPhone, so it's never lost. The Apple logo. 
So that's Apple's commercial that shows off a couple of accessibility features, live speech and personal voice as used by Dr. Income, a disability advocate with muscular dystrophy. The video is quite touching and quite beautiful, but it has raised some broader points about knowledge of accessibility products and features available on mainstream tech, for example, Apple. So Sean Priest has some thoughts on that, and Sean is one of the co-hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily on AMI-audio at noon Eastern time. Hey, good morning, Sean. Hello, Dave. I'm filling up. That was beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah, just the notion of a father being able to connect with their daughter and read them a bedtime story using these two features together speaks to a really strong use case for those two features. And Sean, I know you're someone who also tends to utilize some of the accessibility features across the iPhone. So before you and I jump into maybe a broader marketing conversation, just a day after International Day of Persons with Disabilities, how would you... Um, evaluate or summarize the bevy of offerings that Apple has in place that might be serving somebody like Dr. Ingham or might be serving someone like Sean Priest? Well, again, I, I just think there's so much work gone in to making these accessibility features even possible. And the amount of, of work and research and development is absolutely amazing. So many times when, you know, my screen reader doesn't read something, oh, this is terrible, they don't care. But the amount of research that does go on in the background, there are obviously teams and teams of people there working on this stuff. And even as someone with a disability, it, it doesn't mean that I've got any great insight into other disabilities at all. I'm just as ignorant as anyone else to other disabilities and how people with uh, who are unable to touch screen or who are unable to speak would use various devices. And it, it's not until you get something like this, something that, that sort of just highlights it, they think, okay, that does make you think. But again, I only, this was released, as you said, as part of Persons with Disability Day. Is that enough? I don't know what the answer is. Let me put that straight out there. I do have thoughts on this, but how do you reach people? This this technology, these features have the potential to change people's lives. But how do they know about these? How do yeah. they know they even exist? Honestly, I don't know what the answer is. Right, you and I could have a conversation. We could, You and I could have just a really earnest, straightforward conversation every week where I just ask you, what's a feature? What's a feature? What does this do? What does that do? Yes. Right, like like you've been on the show before. You talked about uh, how you like the iPhone Pro's uh, door detection mode, right? But if yes. you and I just talked about one feature every week, we wouldn't be having the most compelling conversations in the world because it's it's sort of, what does that do? Oh, it shows me where doors are. It, it like the there needs to be sort of that secondary or tertiary thought if you were able to do that like truly effectively. Exactly. And it's the million dollar question that's been going on for years and years. Whose responsibility is it to make people aware of these sort of features? I mean, is it my own personal responsibility to research this? I think personally, yes, partly. Um, is it the tech company? Should the tech company do more like Apple have done here with this? And let's be fair, other companies uh, uh, at this day, Personal Disability Day, do the same sort of thing. They they highlight the features that they have. It's a, a great resource for that. But it, it still, it seems like it's so hard to reach people who truly need this technology. For example, I know lots of people who still don't know that they can use a, a mainstream smartphone 
if they can't see the screen. The amount of people I still talk to to this day. And, it, I, you know, again, in our little bubble, oh, everyone knows about screen readers. It just isn't the case. Lots of people maybe not interested in technology at all or even not interested in smartphones or whatever. They just don't know the the effect that technology can have on their everyday life. Yeah. How do you reach people? If you just have a podcast, for example, well, what if someone doesn't even listen to podcasts? Right. How do you reach those people? People might not even know what a podcast is. So it's a, it's a really tricky question, but I think it's something we should you know ponder quite a lot. Yeah, th th there's definitely something to be said that maybe goes beyond making a, a video that pulls at the heartstrings. Like like that video that that just that we just showed has that that emotional element that sort of shows a father reading their daughter a bedtime story, and it's it's yeah. like, it's very clear. There's a very clear use case. I but when you talk about somebody maybe not understanding the capacity of using a screen reader on their phone or that built-in technology, I think that's where a corporation might have to invest in something that is a little bit more earnest, like a tutorial, like a straight walkthrough on the Apple website where maybe you have the 10 or 15 features that are listed, the 10 or 15 most prominent accessibility features on your iPhone, and it's actually just a tutorial. And maybe that's not too far removed from what you do on your show, Sean of the Shed, where you're really trying to demystify some of these things. But again, how entertaining or engaging is a tutorial? What's the return on investment to doing it if you're a tech company? Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, tech companies do have, a, well, not all of them, let's make that clear, but a lot of tech companies do have, you know, accessibility websites, even accessibility um, channels on YouTube. So it's not like the information isn't out there. It's just, it, it sits there. And how do you get that to people who may not be able to access access a website or a YouTube channel in the first place, should they be reaching out in different ways? I, for example, when, when you get your smartphone, there, I, I believe there should be almost, you don't get an instruction manual with it. I mean, why isn't there an app bang in the middle of your front screen of what your phone can do, what it's capable of? You know, let's get all those resources that are available on YouTube or on the company's website. Let's put them on the device so that people who may not have a need for it will actually see the information is there at some point. So someone is always, hey, we're all bored and we click on every single app on our home screen at some point. And if someone <laughs> says, hey, I didn't know this, you know, personal voice or live speech feature is there. And maybe, you know, someone they know, friend, family member has difficulties, then that's how it spreads. Like there's, as I said, there's no simple answer to this. But yeah. um, I, think I, 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 almost, I almost wonder if the flaw in your theory is, though, that you're waiting for them to get the tech in their hands before they get that kind of knowledge given to them. I actually wonder if you're specifically talking about someone who's a little bit more grassroots and not techie at all, then you've got to start building partnerships with organizations, with disability service organizations that yes. are going to be able to do in-person trainings on these phones, like that it might get rolled into what we would call in the, the blind and low vision side, the orientation and mobility training, but sort of whatever yes. mobility training, whatever orientation training you wanna be giving somebody, it has to be going into people's hands, like almost directly. You can't wait for them to lay out the thousand dollars on the phone. No, absolutely. But I, I believe there's two fronts to this. There's the mainstream 
people without disabilities, the friends and the family, as I said, being aware that it's there and passing the information on. Word of mouth, I think, is hugely effective, but it's got to be out there in the mainstream. It can't be hidden away and then just, you know, only certain people know about it. Uh, and, and secondly, I think you're right as well, at the foundation level, um, there's so many times, like ophthalmologists, consultants, that that time when you're told, oh, I'm sorry, but your eyesight is at this level or whatever disability it is. There's so many times where you're just cast adrift. I think the follow-up on there, that so many people should know much more about what, what someone with a disability is capable of because of the technology that is available. And I, I hate to say it, but there's there's many times where I've been to a low vision clinic after you know a, a, a drop, a severe drop in my vision, and I'm offered a magnifying glass or something that the, the, the knowledge isn't there at yeah. the foundation level, at the source, uh, uh, at the almost a medical level, I could say. Yeah. And um, it maybe we're relying on organizations a little bit too much to reach out. And because I've never had O&M training ever. I've never been offered it. I've never reached out for it. I've never, I am in desperate. I am terrible with my mobility, <laughs> but I've never, that there people fall through, let me try and say that again. People fall through the net all the time. Yeah. So I, 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 as I look again, I'm going to keep repeating this. I don't have an answer to this. It's a really difficult question to, to how do you reach everybody? But um, yeah, I think I think you're right. At, at the source level is is one point as well. The front lines for sure. You've got to be thinking about the yes. front lines and points of contact for sure. And I think you're like you're right to point out like there are these medical moments where someone's going to have a diagnosis in their life, or maybe now they're going to be joining the disability community, or maybe they're going to be uh, developing a big life change in regards to the disability evolving. And yeah, there would be it would be great if there were more resources in that moment to say, well, a lot of people are doing this in that state, right, as opposed to shuffling them off to the next bureaucrat or the next bureaucracy or the next foundation. Exactly, Sean, I'm going to put on my therapist hat for a second here, though, because I wonder, if, it, I wonder if where this thought is perhaps coming from where one of my thoughts lands around Awareness Days, where I feel like whatever the Awareness Day may be, in this case, it's a, a Persons with Disabilities Awareness Day, that some of this like advertising, although beautiful and touching, just feels a little bit crass, that it feels like a tokenistic marking of the day. And that's a difficult question. I did think about this myself as well. I don't know, how else would you highlight a feature like this? I mean, if you just had a plain person with a disability saying, hey, I use this because I need this, you know, I'm unable to speak, so I use this feature on the iPhone, would that be as, would that reach as many people no, as something no, like this, which has been beautifully filmed, apparently, beautifully filmed by some uh, well-known producer filmmaker and, and, you know, packaged in that Apple way. Is this more effective, basically? But I do get, I do understand what you're saying. It's almost pulling at the heartstrings too much. Um, I, I don't know what the balance is there, though. Yeah. Oh, but, 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 Sean, my question might even be more particular about timing, right? That it's like, okay, it's the it's the last week in November, it's the it's first week day. of December, time to roll out our disabled stuff. <laughs> yes. Um, again, that could use on to the discussion about the effectiveness of uh, uh, one day a year, and then is it forgotten about? But that is why I, I started, really, with the amount of work that goes in to the research all the time 
on this because tech companies do get a lot of grief and rightfully so sometimes about you know the bugs that are going on in voiceover let's say in my case or whatever it may be and the fact that hey we get one day a year where we you know celebrate uh, disability features um but let's not forget that it takes years and years to develop these features mm -hmm. features like you know live speech which can work in inside facetime calls phone calls the ability to type something and it's spoken out audibly is something that people rely on every single day so i do i do kind of agree yes it, it does seem like a, a tokenistic is a great word actually but what's the alternative have nothing at all yeah right exactly i, I, honestly, exactly. I don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah like just I'll, ignore it completely <laughs> yeah i'll choose the bandwagoning for one day a year the, compared to zero <laughs> days a year right if that's if that's the binary you're forcing me into yes i will choose uh the one day exactly. a year over zero hey sean along those lines uh, this topic ended up uh, prompting the daily poll question today at accessible media on twitter at accessible media oh. inc on facebook and uh the question is what type of assistive technology has had the biggest impact on your life. I'll read you a couple options here, Sean, but you're not limited to this. Navigation and GPS, voice control and voiceover, automated captioning or other. So Sean, I know I'm putting you on the spot there other. and certainly you're, you're happy to go off the board here. And did I just hear you say other? Sean's going other. No, 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 no. I was just trying to think what other would be. No, look, it's got to be the screen reader for me because as soon as I started to lose my sight and I started to struggle seeing a computer screen because that's all I ever did. As a kid, I was constantly on a computer at college. It's it's what I wanted to do. It's what I was. I was a, that computer nerd. And it wasn't until I discovered screen readers that I suddenly thought, and this wasn't straight away, obviously, I thought, you know what, it's going to be fine. I, I, can, I can interact and it works. That was the biggest impact for me because for the longest time it was just okay well as soon as i can't use the magnifier anymore that's it i'm out but it turned out not to be the case sean i always appreciate your perspectives thank you for going a little long with me today have a lovely day talk to you soon thanks a lot dave take care that is sean priest he's one of the hosts of double tap you can find that show daily noon eastern time on ami audio coming up after the break the band kiss has said no more live concerts for us. They played their last concert over the weekend, but they are going to find a way to live forever, rock and roll all night, party every day. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. KISS played their last live show over the weekend, but Alex Smythe, they are still going to find a way to rock and roll all night. And party every day, Dave, because KISS is going digital. Margie Starletta has the lowdown. 
did their last show at New York's Madison Square Garden on Saturday. During the encore, they introduced the next version of KISS, digital avatars of the current lineup that performed God Gave Rock and Roll to You 2. The avatars were created by the same technology as the recent ABBA Voyage show in London. KISS singer Paul Stanley says the band deserves to live on because it's bigger than them. Bassist Gene Simmons says the technology means Stanley can jump higher than he ever has before and the band members can be forever young. I'm Archie Zaraleta. So this move doesn't surprise me at all because KISS is known for their branding and being able to put their label and name on anything. You want you want housewares? You got it. You want a toy? You got it. You want a KISS coffin? You got <laughs> it. So uh, it doesn't surprise me at all, but I want to find out from the rest of the round table. So we'll start with uh, uh, Nisreen on this one. Nisreen, how do you feel about a fully digitized concert experience? Mm, I like the purpose of it of how you know they get to the band gets to live on forever however i in general i don't like it i don't like the idea of it because you might as well just stay home and watch on youtube so um i think the bigger question is are people paying for this for future concerts and just to see their avatars and and such so i think that the big um I think the big thing about concerts is, you know, when the performers are interacting with the audience and there's they're engaging with the audience and you, you just get to see them physically live. And it may be realistic or maybe not, but you're paying for that experience. So I'm wondering... Will people pay for these avatar experiences? Ramya, I think Nazreen nailed it right there. Okay, cool. I can watch this on YouTube for free. That's awesome. No, 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 Dave. You have to pay $100 to go watch this digital performance. Uh, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, like, someone's going to put out Kiss deepfakes out there anyway, right? Like, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. on my free stream of TikTok. I totally agree. Like, I'm not exactly sure what this means. This is very, very vague of, hey, they're going digital, uh, so you still get Kiss for the rest of your life. That's nice, but I'm not sure what exactly that means. I don't think that this is as big as we're... If we're assuming it's going to be big, I don't think that it's going to be big. It's just kind of a, for some reason, I think it's more of like a rights issue, like who gets rights to kiss. Are they going to start making uh, new music, but just not be out there? Uh, is someone going to get rights to making music for them? I don't ugh, know. Ugh, yeah, there's, no, not I don't like, there's not enough info. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't like that side of it. Like, like this should purely be something where it's like a nostalgic greatest, greatest hits kind of thing. Like, we've created the digital yeah. greatest hit show that you can watch on YouTube that has like a bunch of cartoon characters jumping up and down. Like, Okay. Like a cute thing? Yeah, it's kind of cute. It's kind of <laughs> nice, whatever. But yeah, Alex, uh, I, I am not going to stroll into the Danforth Music Hall or, or or the ACC and plop down a couple hundred bucks to, like, go see a cartoon on a screen. Mm. Yeah, well, and I, I view this more like, you know, the hologram technology that's been incorporated in other concerts. I think there is a market for this, but you've you've all mentioned it. it it's it has to be viewed differently than a traditional in-person live concert. Like you, you can't have that same price point. If it's more like these kind of fun, uh, like interactive shows that you get on weekends, like, you know, like ones sure. that are gonna cost you $50 to go out and experience. Ooh, okay, like, ooh, ooh more... like the planetarium. Or something like that, but like you can still do it at, at, at standard concert venues. The one way I think this could be really 
done well and beyond just the context of Kiss, but just in, in greater detail and more broadly, let's say Taylor Swift got in on this. Yeah. She could then simultaneously have a concert in every major city around the world at the exact same time, playing the exact same thing. And it would essentially mm -hmm. be simulcast, but it would have a more of a in-person live experience feel. She may just be in New York, but you could also simultask to, you know, Hong Kong or, or Beijing, to uh, Sydney, Australia, to Munich, to London, to Paris, like Rio. You could go all over the world with this. So I think there is an opportunity. It just has to be viewed pay. differently than how we've always viewed concerts before. But that's like the avatar, right? Not Taylor Swift, the real person. We're still talking. Uh, yeah, but, but you could also no, mimic it. You can mimic it, but the avatar does the exact same thing as Taylor Swift mm. on stage. You just set it up. Oh, it better the same be twenty five dollars. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that's that's it. And also, I can also I can watch Taylor Swift's concert uh, live streamed on YouTube every night yeah. as on well. In, yeah. On TikTok. On TikTok and Instagram. Yeah, thing. yeah. It's it's yeah. I, I I may have watched the Argentina show uh, one Sunday <laughs> night uh, just uh, with with Instagram streams, which ended up being uh, kind of fun, kind of a fun way to spend a Sunday night. Uh, okay, that's it. We're gonna put, we're gonna put a pin in this one. Alex, thank you for bringing this to the table. Nazreen, thank you for your thoughts. Ramya, just before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI? Um, it's going to be easier for you to track your luggage. Have you guys talked about this on Now with Dave? No, I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think oh, so, no. Oh, yeah, breaking news. Air Canada is doing something about it. Um, so we're going to talk more about that with Grant Hardy on our headlines. We're meeting AMI Apprentice, Matthew, uh, Andrew Matthews. He's going to tell us what he's been up to with Ryan Delahanty on the pod side and audio side of things. And on Know Your Rights, Danielle McLaughlin is having a conversation with Professor Ron Billion about how we can make cities more accessible. Oh, yes, please cities more accessible Ramya yeah. thank you for this have a great day you too Dave thanks you can find Kelly and Ramya 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv coming up after the break Canada took home 52 medals at the Parapan American Games gold medalist and flag bearer Allison Levine reflects on her experience this is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Canada's para-athletes had a fantastic showing at the Parapan M Games in Santiago, Chile. Canada was especially dominant on the Boccia court. Paralympian Alison Levine won two gold medals, one for single and another for pairs. Alison was also named the flag bearer for the closing ceremonies, and Alison is taking some time to reflect on her remarkable competition. Alison, it's been about seven years since you and I last chatted. Congratulations on your success, and thank you for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I think there's some self-evidence to this, but how are you feeling after coming home with a couple of gold medals? Um, in one word, satisfied. <laughs> um, in, in more words, um, words don't even do it justice. I just feel pretty elated right now. I'm, I'm on cloud nine, just riding the wave of emotions and um, just feeling so accomplished and grateful for my experience in Santiago. 
You've had quite a bit of success on the court before. I, I know it's hard to rank these things, but but where do you rank this opportunity and, and these couple of wins in Santiago? This one is definitely high up there. Um, I think this season, this season um, has been my best in terms of success. I've been on the podium at every single competition, and this was my third individual gold in a row, um, which is, uh, I guess, first time I think that I've been on the podium the whole season, every tournament. Um, but, um, this competition was really quite a high level, um, kind of a mini Paralympics, um, good lead up into the games next year. So to come home with, uh, two wins is just kind of very reassuring that we're on the right path and that we have, um, very likely medal contention for Paris. I'm definitely going to ask you about your road to Paris in just a moment, but before I look forward with you, I do want to look back at one more component of this. You were named flag bearer. What does that mean to you as an athlete and as a Canadian? Uh, it's huge. It's, um, you know, people are named flag bearer um, based not only on their accomplishments, but also um, on kind of who they are as a person and every single person that has carried the flag to kind of look up to. So to be selected to be the flag bearer is telling me that I'm someone that other people can look up to. It was just kind of this immense feeling of pride and gratitude to add my name to the list. What does the celebration look like, whether it's on the ground in Chile or maybe uh, upon getting home? What have the last couple of weeks been like for you? Last few weeks have been um, crazy, but I'm loving it. <laughs> um, we have had, I've had different media opportunities, um, local news, national news, um, friends and family just calling and, and, and um, you know, wishing me congratulations. I keep looking through the pictures of the events, still haven't hung my medals on the wall because I keep kind of taking them out of the box and looking at them. Um, you know, it's not often that we para-athletes get to be in the spotlight, um, especially Bacha athletes. Um, so I'm really soaking up every moment of it um, while I know it, while it lasts, right? What kind of downtime do you have between now and maybe really ramping up training for the Paris Games? Like, are you able to sort of maybe sink through, keep sinking into the celebration through the holidays? Or is it right back to the grind in the training center? Um, we have training starting back um, on Wednesday. Um, but I'm going to take uh, take that day off. I'm going to go back on Friday. So we had about a week and a half uh, of rest. Um, there wasn't that much of a time difference. It was only two hours between Montreal and Santiago. So we don't mm. have to recover from jet lag or anything. Um, but uh, then we'll have a nice little break of two weeks at the holidays and then back at it. How does preparation look for you upon making that return in January? How do you start hitting the gas to prepare for Paris? Um, I think the coaches are just going to guide us. Luckily, I don't have to think about all that stuff. <laughs> I just have to show up. But I, I assume which is going to be what we always do. We know that our um, we're on the path. To success we we are currently successful as well so i think we just are going to continue doing what we've been doing which is you know our regular 
training schedule and regular time on the court, our regular meetings with professionals and, you know, integrated support team, science team and everything. And um, yeah, should be just more of the same. And hopefully the end of next season will be the same as the end of this season. <laughs> you let me and a camera crew crash one of your training sessions back in 2016 on the road to Rio. And even back then, the caliber of the Canadian Boccia team was like next level. And I think that you and your teammates keep bringing home hardware from these tournaments. And there's a darn good reason why. How does pushing each other in the training room help you guys get right there locked in before you head to a big competition? Yeah, we're really, really lucky that actually the three people in my classification in Canada, we all live in Montreal, so we can all train together. Um, a lot of people in the other classifications that are kind of spread up across the country um, don't get that opportunity like we do. Um, me being ranked second in the world, Julian being ranked fifth in the world, Marco being ranked uh, like 13th in the world. Every single training that we have is extremely high caliber training. So when we get to competitions and we have to play against the number ones in the world, it's just like another day at the office for us. And I think that's how us as the BC4 classification has also been able to grow so quickly and perform so well is that our bar is always very, very high. Elite level athletes are interesting creatures. I want to ask you a question about momentum because I'm sure an athlete going through a slump would say momentum means nothing, but you're on a heater, Allison. What does momentum mean going into a Paralympic year for you? Um, I, I think... I mean, unfortunately, my momentum is going to have to be broken a bit. I do have a surgery scheduled for January. Um, it's going to force me to take a few months off. But um, last January, I actually ended up in the hospital for emergency surgery and um, had a few months off and ended and had an amazing season. So I'm, I'm hoping that my body is going to be doing the same thing this time. And um, I think the momentum doesn't necessarily have to be physical, which I, I think I've kind of proved to myself because of that break I had to take last January, um, but still keeping my mind active and still keeping my um, other skills um, related to Bacha, um, working those uh, when I can't be on the court throwing is super important, and that's what I plan on doing. What does some of your off-the-court training and maintenance look like in terms of keeping the body top shape and top tier, uh, whether, whether it be, again, more, more broader medical stuff maybe aside, but maybe like the day-to-day the -day, uh, rehab and, and, and physio? Yeah, so we do have our physiotherapist that we meet with, uh, that we have sessions with once a week at our training center. On top of that, we have uh, massage therapy. I have mine come to my house. Um, I do a little bit of uh, stationary hand bike every day, every other day. Um, but a lot of bacha, as I like to say, is played between um, both your ears. Mm. So a lot of the mental preparation is super important for bacha because it's such a tactical sport and requires so much control of your emotions and nerves. Um, we each have a uh, mental performance expert um, that we meet with and do a lot of visualization and deep breathing and mindfulness exercises. Um, along with that, there's the tactical side. So doing video review, watching past games of myself, watching games of my opponents, um, analyzing 
all those things, it, it kind of works out to kind of a, a full-time job, even when you're not on the court. Allison, only about a minute here until the hard out from the segment, but I'm curious uh, how that's changed over the years, even in your observation in the last decade, how that off the court side of the sport has evolved. Uh, the, the scientific side of Boccia has exploded exponentially across, I think, the, the entire globe. Um, it's become a lot more serious. People are really um, focusing on those mental tactics. You know, when you get to that really high level in Boccia, pretty much everyone has the same physical skills and can, you know, cover the jack, open the jack, do those things. What's really going to make the difference is those little things, such as your mental training of being able to analyze, uh, decide, and then execute in a matter of seconds and keep all your emotions and everything under control. Allison, congratulations on the success. Wonderful to see the continued success for you and your teammates. Best of luck over the holiday season. Hope the surgery goes well in January. And uh, hopefully you and I get a chance to connect between now and the time you head off to uh, France next summer. All the best. Enjoy. Take care. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's Allison Levine, gold medal winner at the Parapan American Games and flag bearer at the Parapan Am Games in Santiago, Chile. So, so cool to see Canadian para-athletes having all kinds of success all over the world. That's all the time there is for today's episode of Now with Dave Brown. Don't worry, we're back again tomorrow morning, preemptively warning you about the holiday credit card hangover. Ann Arbor from the Credit Counseling Society will offer some tips for dealing with debt. 9 a.m. Eastern Time, the show kicks off. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.